If you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 12. We're not going to get there for a while, though, so you might just want to hold your place and just know that's eventually where we're going to go. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. All right, well, uh, this evening we saw, we played the game with the tower. Congratulations to Clark for the tallest tower. That was a lot of fun to see. Um, but the towers stood or fell based on their foundation, based on the very base level, right? If that held up, things held up. If that didn't hold up, other things didn't hold up. Now, as you know, this fall we're doing big questions, and this spring we're doing big questions. And so as we enter into a series on big questions, our foundation is really important. What do we start with base level on which we can build everything up? And so there are two things. They're both really related, and it's going to be this sold and next sold. And so this sold is... uh, This sold is, can I trust or can we trust the Bible? Okay, the next sold is going to be, did Jesus really rise from the dead? These things are intertwined because the Bible's central message is Jesus and him risen from the dead. Okay, but today we're going to talk about tonight, can I trust the Bible? So hold that passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But to start this question of can we trust the Bible, I think it's helpful to look at three broad reasons why people might say you can't trust the Bible or you should mistrust the Bible. Because when we look at those reasons, what we actually see when we look deeper is that we actually get a different answer entirely. We get an answer of confidence in God's word. So all of these three things start with C's. That way we can remember them a little bit easier. First, people say you can't trust the Bible because of the content of the Bible. What do they mean when they say that? Well, one of the things they mean is Look at the events in the Bible, right? Could those have really happened? Uh, The parting of the Red Sea, fire coming down from heaven in the Old Testament, Jesus feeding 5,000, not to mention Jesus rising from the dead. Could those events have actually happened, right? Those events couldn't have happened, therefore you have to mistrust the Bible. And they say, well, if you believe the Bible, you're coming with these assumptions of belief, and then, you know, you're not really letting the Bible stand on its own. But here's the thing. All of us come to the Bible with prior beliefs and prior assumptions. And those assumptions, assumptions are going to shape the way we look at God's word. If we believe in supernatural things or if we don't, whatever belief we have will shape what we think of God's word. So I have this timeline for us as we talk about the Bible and, uh, and the books. But one of the things that is important to see is our assumptions shape the way we interpret the information we have. An easy example of this is Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the beginning of the New Testament, right, are either dated to before or after 70 A.D. Some scholars date them before 70 A.D., some date them after. What's the difference? Well, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus makes predictions of something that happens in 70 A.D. So if you don't don't believe in the supernatural, if you don't think prophecy can be real, then you're going to date them after 70 A.D., but if they can be real, if the supernatural can be, can be true, then you date them before 70 AD, right? The only difference is your prior assumption when you come to the Bible. So all of us have those assumptions. So it's not good enough to say these events couldn't have happened, right? We have to say, well, we're not, we have to say, what do we assume about the way the world works, right? If there is a God, then there can be supernatural events like these things I've talked about. Now, some people talking about the content will also see, say, well, the characters in the Bible didn't really exist. I mean... King David, like, did he actually exist and things like that? And actually, geology and archaeology and also, uh, also actually ancient other writers aside from the Bible actually help prove the existence of the people in the Bible. It's pretty amazing. I'm only going to give us two examples, but there are more than that. 
So David in the Old Testament lived way back then, right? And people for a while thought he was kind of like King Arthur, a king everybody said exists and was kind of ideal but didn't really exist in history. Well, they found what's called a stella, which is like a giant version of a gravestone with a bunch of writing on it, from a couple hundred years after his life, which talks about the fact that there's a king in Israel, and this king is of the house of David. So within 100, 200 years, we have confirmation that people knew who David was. Go to the New Testament, right? The most important character in the New Testament in all of Scripture is Jesus, and we have historians just around his day, just after his day, talking about Christus, who was put to death by Pontius Pilate, right? Christus meaning Christ. And so we have historians outside the Bible speaking the truth that actually some of these events happened. Now, they don't say he rose from the dead, but they say he lived and died. And actually, in one of these books over here, there's kind of a resource table tonight. The book on the far right has ancient documents, and one of those is that writer, that historian, that talks about him being put to death by Pontius Pilate. So we see examples actually where archaeology and other sources outside the Bible prove the claims of the people in the Bible that they actually lived, that they actually existed. But also the Bible itself has this amazing theme, right? It's written as if it was witnessed by eyewitnesses, because it was, right? All throughout the Bible, the theme is, we saw this happen, we were there. In the New Testament, we hear it a lot. Let me read Luke 1, 1 to 4. This is Luke as he starts his gospel. What does he say? Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So why does Luke write? I know that's kind of a wordy sentence. What does he say? He's following the eyewitnesses, the people that saw it, and he's compiling an orderly account so that a guy named Theophilus could have certainty about what he believes. He's saying, I talked to the eyewitnesses. I talked to the people who saw it happen. This happens elsewhere in the Gospels and in the New Testament. In Mark 15, a guy named Simon of Cyrene carries the cross of Jesus. And when Mark writes about Simon, he says, his, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Doesn't give any last name. He just says, you know, Alexander and Rufus. And we have no idea who that was. <laughs> But whoever he was writing to at first knew Alexander and knew Rufus and could have gone and said, hey, was this your dad? Did this really happen? And they could say, yeah, it happened. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians about the fact that Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, was seen by not only the disciples, the 12 disciples, but 500 eyewitnesses. At the time of the New Testament, people could go, over, go find those people and say, did you see the risen Jesus? And they could say, yes, I did. So we can trust the content of the Bible. We can actually have confidence in it because we see the eyewitnesses who are telling the story and it's confirmed by things outside the Bible. So we can have confidence actually in the content. And that's actually not a reason to trust or not a reason to mistrust. It's actually a reason to trust after all. So that's one thing, the content. But then some people will say, well, the Bible is full of contradictions. That's the second C. They'll say there's contradictions in the Bible. And you're going to hear this at some point. I guarantee you, you will. You might have already heard it. You might be hearing it soon. You might hear it years down the road, but you're going to hear it. So they're going to say, first, the Bible contradicts itself. Now, here's the thing we already talked about. Your assumptions shape your interpretation. What you believe beforehand shapes the way you look at data, all right? But if you hear this, it's not enough to say, oh, yeah, the Bible has contradictions, right? You say, well, where? Where are the contradictions? And then you have to actually look at those. Because some things that appear to be a contradiction on the surface aren't actually at all. And so it's not good enough to say, oh, this is one. You actually have to do the work to say it is or it isn't. 
And actually, when you look deeper at these passages that people cite, it doesn't work that way, and they're not actually contradictions. I'm going to give you two examples, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, people will look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and say, these things contradict. They're two different accounts of creation. God has different names in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Man is created in a different, kind of a different way. The timeline's all messed up. They're contradictions. Right at the beginning of the Bible, contradiction, can't trust the Bible, right? But if you actually look at what's going on, it's a beautiful picture of God's creation. And actually, both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 show us an amazing perspective. Genesis 1 is about God creating kind of the 10,000-foot view, the heavens and the earth, all the things that he made, right? And it's using the name of God. In Genesis 2, it's zooming in all the way down the special creation of Adam and Eve, and that's what it's most concerned with. And the name of God we have in Genesis 2 is the personal name of God he gives to his people. And so what the Bible is saying from the very beginning is the same God who created the heavens and the earth, who created everything, is the same God who knows you, who loves you, and who made you. And that's beautiful. And that's the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2, right? But if we just say, ah, it looks like a contradiction, right? That doesn't fly. We actually have to look deeper. In the New Testament, we see the same thing. Some people think that, you know, the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts contradict because both of them have accounts of Jesus ascending into heaven. In Luke, it says he ascended at Bethany. And in Acts, it says he ascended on the Mount of Olives. So people say, oh, red flag, Bethany, Mount of Olives, got to be a contradiction, right? But again, when we look deeper, we see something different. Bethany was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, right? And they're not as concerned back then with, with accuracy of location, right? So they say, yeah, he was at Bethany. He was at the Mount of Olives. Same thing, right? They would have known that. So things that appear to be contradictions, when we look deeper, actually enrich our understanding of what the Bible's talking about. And there are more examples, but I don't have time for those. Uh, second, some people talk about the history of how the Bible came to be and say, well, different manuscripts of the Bible contradict one another. And when I say manuscripts, what I mean is, up until 1500, any book that you wanted had to be copied by hand, handwritten. So a manuscript just means a handwritten copy. Now, I don't know about you, but I hated copying things down, right? Any, any show of hands, people just don't like copying things over and over and over again? Well, what's amazing is people did that with the Bible so that we could have it today, right? And people, and that, that actually happened. They, they copied the Bible. Well, people will say, well, there's a large number of differences when you look at the different manuscripts, and therefore you can't really trust the Bible. But let me, let me look deeper at that, okay? So they say there's a large number of manuscript differences, let me put it this way. Let's say you have two books. You have book A and book B, okay? Let's say you only have three existing copies of book A. You're not super sure what the actual text originally was because you only have three copies and maybe it spans centuries. So you're like, I'm pretty sure, but that's about it. Let's say one of them has a slight difference. So you have one difference, but you're not really sure overall what the message was. Let's say you have book B that has 100 manuscripts or 1,000 manuscripts. You can be a lot more sure what book B said originally, right? Now, let's say there are three differences in those 100 or 1,000 manuscripts. You technically do have more differences than book A, but you actually have more certainty as to what's actually said in book B. 
In order to make sense of that more, I'm going to talk about manuscripts really quick in the New Testament. And I'm going to compare them to the best information we have for other authors writing around the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So here on this chart, you'll see the Old Testament when it was written, right? There's a historian outside the Bible who wrote just after the Bible was written. We have about 75 of his manuscripts, but the first one we have, that first copy, isn't until after, uh, into like A.D., okay? In terms of the Old Testament, we have 12,000 manuscripts of the Old Testament. And some of the ones we have are earlier than the life of Jesus. Actually, 356, maybe a little bit later, maybe a little bit earlier, it depends on the dating, right? We have a full scroll of Isaiah with some water damage and some other type of damage, but a full scroll of the book of Isaiah, which is amazing. We don't have anything like that from that time period, right? And so we have prophecies about Jesus that we know were written before Jesus that he then fulfills in his life and ministry. When we turn to the New Testament, we see the same thing. The very best contemporary author writing around the time of the, time of the New Testament has 200 manuscripts. But the first one we have isn't until 900 AD, right? Isn't until 900 years later. We have 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, 25,000. And the earliest ones we have are within the second century, 100 to 200 years after the Bible was written. So we have this massive amount of knowledge of the Old Testament and of the New Testament. So are there some differences? Yes, but it's because we have so many manuscripts and we can easily see and determine what actually the reading was and what wasn't, okay? Now it may seem kind of weird if you've never heard about manuscripts of the Bible before, but let me dig down just a little bit deeper, okay? So I'm gonna talk about the New Testament and the same thing applies backwards to the Old Testament. But there's a guy who teaches here at a seminary in Dallas named Daniel Wallace, and he's categorized these type of differences that people say are in manuscripts, okay? There are four categories. The largest category is spelling mistakes. It's nonsense errors, where you can look at it and say they misspelled this word, or they added something on. It's very clear, very easy to see. Everybody knows what's going on, what actually was meant, and what wasn't. That's the largest category. The second largest category of differences are things like synonyms. So it means the same thing. Or grammar that's different, but still has the exact same meaning. Now, it kind of sounds weird to us because in English, word order means everything, right? If your words are out of order, you sound like Yoda, okay? But in Greek, the sentence, Jesus loves John, there's actually 16 different ways you can write it, and they all mean the same thing, Jesus loves John. In English, we only have one way, right? You can't mix any of those words up. You can't add any articles or anything. It doesn't make sense. But in Greek, there's 16 ways. So some of these differences are grammatical and actually make no difference to the meaning of the text. Okay, well, let's look at the third largest category, right? The third largest category are things that we can say, yeah, this is a difference, but this particular manuscript was written, written so long after that it's clearly not the right one, or it's just one manuscript, so clearly it was just one error. Uh, for example, there's one passage that talks about the gospel of God, and one really late manuscript says the gospel of Christ. Well, that wouldn't really be much of a meaningful change, and it's one manuscript way down the line, so we can easily say, okay, that wasn't the original reading, right? And then the very smallest category, the very smallest, are those that we have a couple different options for. But here's the thing. None of those things are being hidden from you. Now, some of this information might be new to you about manuscripts and differences and things like that, 
But all your copies of the Bible already take that into account. Have you ever seen footnotes on a page of your Bible where it says, okay, yeah, this says this, but it could also say this, right? That's what we're talking about here. And none of these affect the essential truths of the Bible. Things like the deity of Jesus, the virgin birth, the resurrection from the dead, the Trinity, all those things, right, it doesn't affect any of those things. And if, I encourage you this week to look at your Bible, as you're reading the Bible anyway, and look at those footnotes and say, do those really change the meaning? And you'll look at them and say, no. So sometimes people trot out this large number of differences in the Bible manuscripts, but we see that actually doesn't hold as much weight. In fact, we have so many manuscripts that we have such a high degree of confidence, more so than for any other historical book at the time, right? We actually have more evidence for Jesus than we do for the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus, which is pretty amazing, right? We have more evidence for Jesus than the Roman emperor at the time. So we actually, when we look at those, we actually have confidence that we have the original text of Scripture and the original things that the Bible said. Okay. So some people say the content means you can't trust it. Some people say the Bible is full of contradictions, right? But the last reason also starts with a C is people say there were Christianities, plural. And it sounds kind of weird. This is somewhat of a newer objection to Christianity, but I, I think you'll probably hear it, especially if you take like a Bible course at a non-Christian college. What do they mean when they say Christianities? Well, here's what they say. They say, well, there's other books that aren't in your New Testament, Books that are called like the Gospel of Thomas or the Apocalypse of Paul or books that talk about what Jesus did when he was a kid, right? And if you look at those, they give you a different version of Christianity. And so the version you have is only the version that was decided upon by Emperor Constantine in 325, okay? Now, it seems kind of technical, but people will use this to say you, you shouldn't trust the Bible. They say this is just the one that won out. It's not actually, there were a lot of options back then, and just this is the one you happen to have. Your Bible could be completely different. Who knows? And that's what they're going to say. But again, when we look deeper, again, we see that doesn't hold water. So these Gospels and these other books they trot out, none of them are from the first century. The very earliest of them are the mid-second century, over 100 years after those events in the New Testament. And so if you have a book called The Gospel of Thomas, way after the life of Thomas, he couldn't have written it. If you have a book called The Apocalypse of Paul, way after Paul was definitely dead and gone, <laughs> you, can't have, you can't be from Paul, right? And here's the other thing. If you actually go in and read these books, they're completely different from the Bible. Okay, I'm going to read us an ex excerpt of The Gospel of Thomas, and you're going to hear it, and you're going to say, yeah, clearly this isn't the Bible. Okay? So this is what The Gospel of Thomas says. Simon Peter said to him, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the Gospel of Thomas, okay? That's very clearly not the Bible, right? And you and I, who aren't experts on any of this, can read that and hear that and say, yeah, clearly that's not the Bible. And this, that's the same thing the early church did. Right? They read what was in the New Testament, and they recognized the cohesive, unified story of Jesus. And they understood what was in the Bible. So it's not like people decided what was in the Bible later. Rather, they recognized what was actually God's word. Does that make sense? They recognized what was actually God's word. So actually, we see, not there are multiple Christianities, but there's one unified message and story that from the very beginning, if we could recognize it now, Christians then could recognize it. And, like I said, they could go ask those eyewitnesses, what did you see? Did Jesus say this? Did he actually say this? They could figure it out. And all of these books, 
are from later, way later than the New Testament. So it's not like we had multiple versions of Christianity. We had people trying to pass off books that the early church really clearly looked at and said, okay, this is not the Bible. This is not the New Testament. So there was one unified message, one Christianity, not multiple. All right. So we've talked about content. We've talked about, you know, people say there are contradictions. We've talked about people say there are multiple Christianities. But actually, when we look at all three of those, instead of mistrusting the Bible, we actually have confidence that we actually have God's word. And this is the Bible that you have with you today. But one last thing. What, do you, what does the Bible say about itself? Right? We've talked about the Bible. We've talked around the Bible. We've talked the manuscripts of the Bible. What does the Bible actually say about itself? And that's where we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you've held your place there for a long time, great job. 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 12 through 17 for us. This is what it says. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So it says a lot of things in this passage, and I encourage you guys to read this and reflect over what it means for God's word. But it starts out saying, gospel, God's word is breathed out by him, right? So when we say it's God's word, we're saying he actually made it happen. He breathed it out. And the way he does that, his Bible also says elsewhere, is that the Holy Spirit takes the people who are writing and it says, carries them along. Right? It, it inspires the words of Scripture so they're actually God's word and not just words of a mere human. Right? This is the only book like this in the world that's breathed out by God. And if God has spoken it, then we can trust it because God doesn't lie. So we can trust his word. And it's not like other books because it was you know, authored by God through the Holy Spirit, through the pens of men. Right? What we can actually see is that same Holy Spirit that lives in us actually changes us when we come to God's word. It's pretty amazing. This is what Hebrews 4 says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That is amazing, right? That the word of God is actually, even now, even though it was authored back then, it's now living and it's active. And there's a purpose to this book. As we read in, in 2 Timothy, it's to make us wise for salvation. And the, the books actually say what they're about. John 20 says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the theme of the book of John, and that's the central theme of the Bible, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. But it also does other things, too. 1 John 5.13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Right? The Bible is given to us by God, so we might know him and that we might live for him. It's like no other book. I want you to imagine this. 
right? Uh, a lot of you have to cite sources for your papers, maybe use MLA formatting, right? And you cite experts. You're always trying to find what the expert says, right? Well, what if the expert walked in and started talking to you about whatever topic it is? Who would they quote? They wouldn't quote themselves. They're the ones talking, right? It's the same when we come to God's word. This is actually the word of God, so it needs no other source. It doesn't need to quote anybody else, right? It's God's word inspired by his spirit, and now we have it for us, which is amazing. So if we can have confidence and trust in God's word, what do we do with it, right? In closing, what do we do with God's trustworthy word? Well, we use it. We read it. We reflect on it. We study it. We memorize it often, right? We live by it. And most importantly, we look for truth in it because it is truth. So individually, we can use this. We're able to read it, which is amazing, right? And I encourage you guys to be reading your Bibles. But also, it's meant to be used in community because this was given to God's people as a book, right? And so we study it together. That's why we come on Sunday mornings and we hear the Word of God preached. That's why we come on Sunday evenings and hear about different things taught, right? Um, now, I don't expect you. I've talked about a lot of different things tonight. I don't expect you to remember every date. I don't expect you to remember every number of manuscripts, everything that's not actually a contradiction, right? But I want you to take this away. Know this, that we can trust God's word, that we can trust the Bible as the source of truth. So, as we start the semester reflecting on the big questions and examining the big questions, let's come to God's word together, ready to seek for truth. And this is the foundation on which the whole year is going to be built, that we can trust God's word and have confidence that it's, uh, that's for us. Uh, the church that I was at in St. Louis, every Sunday that we would read God's word, you guys know New St. Peter's, we do something every Sunday. We stand up, right, very reverently, and then after it's read, uh, we hear the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And, and many churches do similar things. Our church in St. Louis just simply said this, this is the word of God, it is true and given to us in love. And I want that to stick with us this, this year because we're going to see a lot of things in God's word. And every time we come to God's word, know this. This is the word of God. And it is true and is given to us in love. Let's pray. Father, it is astounding to see how you have given us your word. That we have these books that now have all the things that you wrote years and years and years ago. And you preserve them so well over such a long time. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for the faithful Christians that copied these things by hand so that we might have them. Lord, would you help us to use your word well? By your spirit, would you change us as we come to your word? And give us confidence that you've given this to us. And it's because you love us and care about us. And you've shown that love most significantly in Jesus. And his death on our behalf. And his resurrection from the dead. Thank you for your many gifts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one thing I'm going to do differently in this series on big questions is afterwards, I'm going to take questions. So you might not be prepared, but I've said a lot of stuff tonight. So in terms of the theme of can we trust the Bible, what questions do you have, if any? One, what was the specific event in Matthew and Luke that you're talking about. Yeah, so in 70 AD, there's the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus predicts that. There's a space about the abomination, abomination of desolation. Anyway, he predicts the destruction, the coming destruction of the temple. And so people who don't believe in the supernatural have to say those books are written later because <laughs> they can't say they were written beforehand and it was predicted. Yeah, good question. I have a question. Um, so you said that 
Yes. I was wondering about, you were talking about manuscripts, and maybe I didn't understand everything you were saying, but you were talking about manuscripts and that the oldest like manuscripts that we have for a lot of New Testament books go back to this second century, mm -hmm. but then you were talking about the Gospel of Thomas, and that that's also in the second century. Uh, yes. So what's the difference in the, like, the fact that we can trust some of them, other than the fact that like the Gospel of Thomas said a lot of it, we don't believe. Yeah. And we don't, yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's a really helpful question. So... Uh, the gospel of those, what they call non-canonical gospels, means they're not in the Bible. They were written at the very, some of them at the very earliest were written in the second century. But we don't have copies of them till the third and fourth century. What we do have are copies of the New Testament from a hundred years later, knowing that those books were written in the first century. So thank you. That's a good, that's a good clarification. Uh, Michaela. Um, you said that uh, the gospel of Timothy, you, like, you could tell the difference Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's okay. If you think about it, we'll come back. Yeah, Jackson. So we, we have like some manuscript that has water damage. Where was it stored exactly? Yeah, so this is from the collection called the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's pretty amazing because for a long time with the Old Testament, we didn't have we didn't have copies of it until way later in the way later in you know, A.D. after the life of Jesus, but they were found in a cave. Um, it's called the Dead Sea Scrolls in a cave near a uh, community called Qumran. And it, basically a shepherd found it. He was chasing after a sheep and he threw a rock into a cave to find a sheep and it hit a clay pot. And he goes in to find the clay pot and he finds manuscripts of this stuff written. What are the odds of that? I know. And so we have small damages and like fraying to the ends of it. And you can actually find this online. If you search Great Isaiah Scroll, you can actually go look at it online and see it, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, Logan. Would it be stored in the Smithsonian? No, it's actually stored in Jerusalem. Yeah. When was it written? Uh, the earliest date that people give for that copy of Isaiah is 356 okay. B.C. Yeah. Which is also interesting because some people say that, oh, Isaiah had a bunch of different authors. But all the way back at 356, we have the whole book together in one scroll. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. When, when is Isaiah itself? Like, when do we think it was first written? Yeah, uh, Isaiah would have been written uh, probably in the, uh, it would have been written kind of 700, 600 B.C., so back, back a little bit away. Yeah. Um, last thing I'll say, there's some other resources over there. Uh, in terms of that question of other Christianities, there's a great book called The Heresy of Orthodoxy that's on the far left of some guy going, going deep on it and saying, actually, this is not the case, and here are all the complex reasons why. Uh, there's a Greek and Hebrew Bible, if you just want to see what the Bible looked like in Greek and Hebrew. Uh, Greek is on the left side and Hebrew is on the right, because Hebrew goes right to left. Um, there's a Greek Bible that has, at the very bottom of each page, the differences in some manuscripts, and it will say which manuscripts say this, which manuscripts say that. Um, and then we have that ancient Christian document that has... Um, like historians outside the Bible talking about Jesus and talking about Christians. Great. Last chance for questions. They're all based, if, if the Bible that we have today is all based on these manuscripts, how can we still have different translations even just with English? Yeah, yeah, good question. So with these translations, so for example, with the New Testament, it was originally written in Greek. And so 5,700 of the manuscripts we have are written in Greek. And that would have been the original language, right? 
But once you have that original language, if you're going to take it into English, you have to do the work of translation. And so people decide how they want to translate it because, like I said earlier, grammar works differently in, in Greek than it does in English. And sometimes if you translate really literally, it's going to be a sentence that doesn't really flow well, doesn't make sense. So you have to make decisions on how am I going to translate this to make it make sense in English. And some people follow different patterns of translation. Does it make, does it make some sense? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So uh, after the time of the, well, right before the time of the Reformation, for a while the Catholic Church had a translation in Latin called the Latin Vulgate, and they only wanted people to use that translation. But then, before the time of the Reformation, uh, I don't know the exact date, sometime between the 13th and 15th century, uh, there was some people that started to translate it into their own language, because it got to the point where nobody, none of the commoners knew Latin. So they couldn't really know the Bible. And so people said, well, we need to know the Bible. This is God's word. It's more important than what the church says with tradition. And so they started translating it into, into English. And eventually, later after the Reformation, the first big work was the King James Bible. Yeah, good question. All right, if there are no more questions, you can take a look at those. I'll answer any questions on those as we go to small groups. But thank you guys for listening.